Over a hill and under a misty mountain, deep within the unceded Musqueam territory of Vancouver, British Columbia, I'm Doug Vandalay with another episode of Comedy Zeitgeist. You can follow the show on Twitter at Comedy Zeitgeist and pester me at Doug Vandalay. Hello to everybody listening on CITR 101.9 here for the first 30 minutes of the show. The host of a show with another subterranean-themed name, I'm here with Jackie Hoffard of Foxhole Comedy. How's it going, Jackie? Pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So uh, just off the bat, how uh, did you get started in comedy? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, the short answer is that I took a stand-up class through um, Instant Theater, which is one of those places where you can go for like four Sundays for an afternoon, and it's sort of you and six or eight people workshopping your first five minutes, and then you finish the class with a show with everyone in the classes, family and friends. So it's like the warmest audience ever. And, um, and then, yeah, you sort of take it from there. And, uh, so that's officially how I started unofficially, uh, my confirmation speech in front of my church when I was like 12, I got a laugh right off the top and I was like, Oh, I like this. Um, but it's not as though comedy is something that was uh, like a linear path or even anything I would consider, I mean, there's days where I'm like, am I a comic? So I don't know. Depends when you ask me. But So what was your journey from uh, starting that to hosting Foxhole Comedy? Maybe it would be more useful for me to kind of rewind a little bit, which is to say um, I did a teen angst night, which is a, a night that um, a comedy producer or a show producer, theater producer, general fun person around town, Sarah Bino hosts. And um, I, it's where you read your like teenage diaries. And I figured that would be a really safe way to start doing comedy because two reasons. One, you're reading. And two, uh, you have like an ironic distance from your material because it, though you wrote it, you wrote it as a child or a teenager. And so um, I started doing those uh, and like just kept doing them because they were quite a quite a lot of fun and then I started doing um storytelling shows uh so like I don't think they do the series anymore but um there was one called Rain City Chronicles for a few years and it would be a lot like the moth where you had to tell a story without notes um specific time limit um and then I st- and then that gave me the courage to go okay let's do stand-up um and like I said I took that class but then then I just sort of very slowly like over the course of a year, I probably went up like a dozen times maximum at different open mics and booked shows if I could get them. Because um, even before I was in comedy, I had a lot of friends in comedy. And, um, you know, and then uh, I used to work in film production. So I, I would sort of disappear off the earth for like three and four and six months at a time and then drop back in and try to do open mics like every night while I was off work to just have something to do. And um, so, yeah, so for several years, I had phases of being more involved and interested and trying to book shows and work out material and then just kind of disappearing. Um, Last year, so like 2017, a guy named Brent Constantine started a show. He runs Little Mountain Gallery with a bunch of other folks. And um, he, at the time, ran the show Foxhole Comedy um, out of the projection room at the Fox. Um, which is this much smaller venue above the cabaret that has about 30, 40 seats. And he ran that show without any um, like specific or particular theme or even anything particularly regular about the way, like the number of comics from week to week. 
Um, I would say the only thing that was consistent about it, other than the fact that he did do it every week, was that it wasn't particularly well attended. <laughs> so um, so the, the Fox was very patient with him in him trying to build the audience. Um, but at the same time, I think um, a bunch of other stuff was happening for Brent professionally. And I think he didn't really have the time to focus on it. And I was just always obsessed with that space. Like, I always really liked it. I loved going to the show. I loved being on the show. I would go when I wasn't on the show, which is always a good sign when a comic likes to go to a show that they're not on. And one day I just approached him and said, hey, you know, like I kind of knew him. I wouldn't say we were like friends, but I, you know, comedy friends. And I just asked him like, hey, you know, I love this space. Do you need any help with like social media? I can do your Instagram or something. Like I just really want to, I find myself always wanting to know who's on the show and it's a little difficult. There isn't much of a social media presence. And he was like, yeah, let me get back to you. Like there's lots of changes happening. Um, I appreciate the offer. I'll let you know. <clears throat> and then like uh, a couple days later, he was like, uh, so it turns out all the things that I had lined up for the show that I was thinking about have not panned out. So do you want to just take over the show? And I was like, yes, I will. <laughs> and then he was like, do you want to start tomorrow? And I was like, okay. So yeah, so that's how it happened. He just handed me the show basically. And what I did was then, you know, obviously for a couple weeks, it was still the people he'd booked, but then I... Took, I, the only thing I really kept is the name and the space. Everything else I've completely changed. So I decided that if I was going to run a show, it was going to be, we don't really have like a good word for it, to be honest, but like, like marginalized voices led. But by marginalized, I also mean like women, anyone who is non-binary or any person of color, anybody who is otherwise or like queer or anything like that, just sort of basically just not the average guy in comedy that those people were going to be privileged in terms of building the lineup but like the reality is that I I just have a cap on cisgendered heterosexual white men which is every week I book no more than two out of a total of eight performers who fit that exact category and so the, it's sort of like the opposite of CanCon you've got like 20 percent 25 percent of uh <laughs> I suppose so yeah I mean it's I mean it's yeah, not the opposite, but it's a similar thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it's stressful for people and also in some ways for myself to think of it as being like literally discriminatory in the sense that I'm discriminating the amount of people and the certain types of people by, based on identity markers that I'm allowing on the show. However, um, the reality is, is that the comedy scene is inaccessible for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And a lot of those reasons have to do with the fact that it's essentially a, a form, like a formless, um, no experience required, barrier free, in some ways, uh, experience, which is to say anybody who feels entitled to do it entitles themselves to do it and just takes a stage and says what they want. And so you have to, as a person practicing it, which you have to do constantly, um, you have to put up with a lot of not just unfunny stuff like that's that's not even that's not even really the problem as a practicing yeah. amateur comedian. You have to just put up with a lot of like racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist bullshit. And it's really, it really turns people off comedy. And so for me, I wanted to just not change all of that, but just make a, make a, uh, a dent in 
the spaces where people can do comedy. So that includes, so that's part of why the show is also um, all uh, experience levels. So I always have basically a pro headliner, person who does 12 or 15 minutes at the end and everybody else does seven minutes each. And, um, but I always have like one or two people who are very new or like pretty new to comedy. And then everyone else is just sort of varying levels in between and all ages too. And we've had a few celebrities, like it's, you know, we mix it up, but, um, I've been really excited with how much it's sort of taken off with, with folks, especially I would say like under 30 queer ish or I don't know, just like the new generation (laughs) millennials, basically like people who are not interested in kind of the same old, same old club comedy anymore. And um, again, while I don't prescribe what people say on my show, I do let people, especially guys that I maybe don't know, know that um, it's a feminist show and that if, you know, they can steer clear of being bigoted uh, for seven minutes, they're welcome on the show. And if they say, if they do anything that's like not cool in my show or not allowed, then they don't come back. Or depending on what it is, I'll ask them to revise it <laughs> or ask them to avoid that joke. It's no different than curating any other kind of show in that respect. Yeah, well, I mean, in the context of comedy, I feel like um, there's a, there's a, uh, like a, I would maybe say fanatical obsession with one's freedom to do whatever they want. Yeah. And that is pretty, I mean, it's partially the beauty of the medium is that it's so formless in some ways. You can come up and talk about aliens for seven minutes and, or you can be two people, you can be three people, you can, there's, there's no prescriptions except sometimes people find it um, offensive (laughs) to be, uh, requested to steer clear of topics that may or may not be um, welcome in certain audiences. And I don't have a problem with that because their feelings, the people who object to that policy are not the feelings I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about all the other people who basically don't like going to comedy because they find it all so offensive. And the reality is there's so much good comedy out there. There's so many really smart, really funny, wonderful people with, life experiences and stories you don't often see in mainstream comedy because we've just privileged a certain sort of person for so long that uh and it's kind of inaccessible for those kind of marginalized people to get into a lot of regular shows right yeah i mean um it is and it isn't it's like you know again it's this case of like um it you know it like with so many professions and especially in the arts um there's just this sort of boys club at the top and which is not to say that there aren't women who also uphold this sort of status quo but um most women in comedy have who have careers in comedy have had to um like toughen up or whatever <laughs> develop a tough skin and while that's important um uh, in some ways i think like i think there's a lot of beauty in being soft or being not tough and i think that there's a lot of um, like humor and possibility for the magic that comes with storytelling, which is what comedy is, uh, through and not being people who have to sort of calcify themselves to withstanding or hearing other comics or comedy or content that is knowingly or unknowingly really marginalizing. Like, I don't think people should have to go through that to develop as comics. And so any intervention I can make 
is like throwing my own little like not that it was that much long ago or that I was that young but throwing my little queer self like a like a bone just saying like yeah there's gonna be space for you but you're gonna also have to make it but I, I really had this attitude across all mediums that you have to suffer for art mm, or worse yet you have you and elvin you do you do have to but yeah you but have to work hard That's it's one not a thing. prerequisite like you can be a happy artist yeah, but you don't have to suffer fools, basically. And yeah. I think that's the the difference. So, I mean, we can talk about what it, you know, the steps it takes to build a career in a traditional sense in comedy. That's not even something that I do. Like, I have a full-time job doing other things. Um, and comedy is f- f- for reasons, but also for good reasons. Basically something that um, I do as my artistic outlet on the side it's my side pancake as my good friend katie stewart would say she has like a whole essay about side pancakes and how that's like like an ihop thing yeah as in like (laughs) every time you get a breakfast you should always get a side pancake like and that like like in your life you should always like sometimes you have to think of especially in a city like vancouver you have to think of your artistic practice as the side pancake this is my side pancake right here exactly so foxhole is my side pancake but i like i am i allowed to swear Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I fucking love it. Like, it's really, truly my favorite thing. And honestly, if I kind of never do anything else in comedy other than run this show, even if it changes venues or whatever, but if I can keep running a weekly show, ugh, it's my favorite thing. And for lots of reasons. One, uh, it's amazing to see people um, who other who basically feel alienated by the main mainstream i don't want to say it like there's one big group of people it's a lot like high school it's a bunch of people who have almost nothing in common there is no like single characteristic that connects everyone in in stand-up it's there really isn't and so you know for me at least it's an opportunity for me to cross paths with people i don't otherwise meet in my life i don't necessarily encounter in my work or in my social life or in my extended family or other hobbies as if I had any it's yeah so it's people who like feel really passionately about things maybe that you totally disagree with and and when you're in that space together trying to um, negotiate towards a mutually exclusive but common goal of bettering your comedy and like getting more chances it's really competitive and like everyone's really insecure and I mean, I suppose that might be the only thing that connects everyone. Although there are some super confident, maybe too confident comics out there, but you get in trouble for slagging other comics. I don't have a lot of filters. We could talk about that stuff later (laughs) as well when the mics are off. Anyway, I lost my trail, but it's really, it's lovely seeing. Basically, there's a couple comics coming up now who I saw on other shows and invited onto mine um, or um, were uh, referred to me through people who knew about the show and thought that those other folks might like the show and then I've just like really invited them on as often as I can and because of course most of comedy booking is just asking for a spot and being granted one and so other than open mics and so uh, and women and especially women of color tend to or folks of color tend to ask less feel less entitled to just get a spot just for asking and so you often have to as a producer um, reach out to people and constantly find people and I struggle uh, with keeping the show as diverse as I would like it to be like even for a show with a dude cap there's still a lot of room to grow but nevertheless there's a few comics who've kind of um really 
I would say come up through not just my room, but also another couple of rooms in the show. Another one called Goldie's um, Comedy Basement is run by this awesome woman named Susie. She has like similar politics, but is a little bit more open. Like her room doesn't have any caps or anything on it. And she'll have a, she has she casts a wider net, but she runs two shows a week and she's very busy. But anyway, seeing people grow, like even in six months or eight months since we've been doing the show, or I guess it's like, well, it's more than that now, but uh, it's gratifying. Like it feels, I don't know. It feels like um, a piece of comedy that I really like, which is hosting and producing, which is actually very different from just doing material. Um, so yeah, so uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I love, I really love this show. Yeah, it was, it's uh, really good to see. And it's, it's, I think it is at least uh 10 months old i think i um i went to one september is when we started right and what is it yeah. now? i don't know if this is supposed to be timeless but like basically it's it's like eight nine ten it's it's june now We're coming up on a year let's say uh when people are listening to this it's gonna be next week cool so or you know whenever they find it you know if we did 2027 math like our parents would have we could have cracked this nut ages ago but we don't need that we got calculators exactly. everywhere. i've got I mean, a calculator it was on like my a baby ago basically yeah yeah that sounds about right yeah just one full gestation period exactly so i understand uh you founded sad magazine no that is not no? accurate not founded oh my oh. god no no but i was um, i heard that on the sad cast podcast <laughs> <laughs> no i founded sad cast the right the sad magazine okay podcast. that's my mistake <laughs> oh my god that's so flattering though um no, uh, a couple of folks who did the publishing program at SFU founded Sad Mag, uh, I want to say almost 10 years ago. It could be 10 years ago and uh, or almost 10 years ago, maybe. And then they handed it off at some point to some uh, a friend of mine, Katie Stewart, who um, is still involved with it, um, although I would say it's moved on to its next iteration now. But it's a printed magazine, like a published, beautiful magazine that focuses on uh, helping emerging artists and writers talk about arts and culture in Vancouver and it only uses film photography it's the best Um, and they're really scrappy and have like really done great work applying for grants and like having a board and like it's real legit and cool and I love them Um, under so I was the co-editor-in-chief for a few years um, of the print Meg and then I kind of was like working in film a lot and just wanted to sort of move on from that and um and I wanted to start uh sort of finding my voice a little bit more which is an elusive journey um and I figured podcasting would be a good way to try that um and it seemed like a good time to launch a podcast and so Katie was like, go for it. And so I just started Sadcast. And initially, there was like one format. And then that that was logistically difficult for me to work, uh, like have that person come to my place and record weekly, which is I think what we initially were trying to do. <laughs> and then it shifted into something slightly different. And then it morphed into something else. And then I was like, this is too much. I'm tired. Pass it on. So it now lives with someone else who's done a really great job with it and simplified it. And it's become this beautiful, uh, I want to say monthly uh, podcast where she does uh, Pam, the um, creative director of the magazine now and also the main designer, interviews creatives from Vancouver, like of all kinds of different genre. So I did start it. <laughs> if you go back in the in the records of it, you can hear my favorite episode, which is just me 
talking to my phone or my iPad probably trying to stay awake while on a road trip by myself. Just me talking to myself trying to stay awake. Yeah, I think we've all been there. (laughs) I'm also joking. It's terrible, but I I think it's funny. But it wasn't really like on brand, and I was just like, okay, someone else should take this over. So you work at uh, Push for the Push International Arts Festival. Push, yeah, I work for Push. I'm the comms director there, which is uh, my first like big girl job. Um, And for 37, that feels about right. When I sort of transitioned out of working in film production, I moved into um, working in film festivals, which is really just like the fourth part of filmmaking, which is distribution. Um, And so I worked at VIF and at the Queer Film Festival and at DOXA. And then because DOXA shares an office with the PUSH Festival, I met a lot of the people at PUSH and kind of learned that it would be a cool place to work. And... Then when a job came up last fall, I, I applied and got it. And then a, then this job came up while I was working there and applied and got it. And um, yeah, so I don't come from a, a theater or performing arts background, except for comedy, obviously, which is like the basement dwelling child of a of the performing arts. And um, it takes a lot more courage than a lot of other performing <laughs> arts. I mean, uh, it is a pretty punishing storytelling medium um but i mean courage is well i just feel i'm definitely part of the group of people who think there's nothing like it's brave to be a refugee in 2018 like it's not brave to do stand-up comedy yeah i guess it's a sliding scale yeah absolutely but anyway um the it's um uh, most comics don't really mind that people look down on it. I mean, what's exciting is that there's a campaign right now to have um, the government recognize it as a an art form with a positive contribution to the culture, such that it would then also qualify for grants through the Canada Council, which would be amazing. And people could, like, unionize. Although, having had experience <laughs> unwittingly self-nominating as the HR department of the comedy scene, I will say organizing comics is probably going to be interesting. Someone should make that documentary. But um, Sounds like you just volunteered. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No thanks. It's not volunteering for you? No, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm good. Um, <laughs> it's too much drama, honestly. Yeah. Um, God, I can't imagine running a guild. Push, right. Yeah. Anyway, so no experience in the performing arts, um, just kind of movie background, but obviously... I mean, professionally, I've had many lives. So I used to work at a newspaper and then there's Sad Mag. And then I like worked in the UK and I'm marketing at a big uh, grocery store. Maybe you've heard of Waitrose. I worked in their communications department. And so communications didn't come out of nowhere for me, but um, but performing arts did. And so Push, if you're not familiar, is like actually the coolest fucking festival. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like not fully eating my nib. Spitting nibs. It's a running theme on this show. Yeah, that's probably why there's a big... I mean, it's it's brave of you to serve nibs during a podcast recording. It Um, started to generate content. Like last week, I dropped some (laughs) on the floor. It's the same bag of nibs. We're just like doling out a little bit this is actually the last of it maybe maybe we won't uh renew this one but i just love them yeah me too can't get them. my wife doesn't like them and i'm like Oof, more for you you're wrong yeah. yeah um she also doesn't like avocados which is also like that's weird it's really weird i was yeah. like ooh, can we get married i don't know but i went with yes for other reasons but 
anyway, um, Push Festival, it's really rad. It's multidisciplinary. So it's not like um, theater exactly, although there is theater in it. It's kind of like uh, it's three, three-ish weeks of a bunch of different performances by different people. I want to say the majority of whom are not who are international or from other cities. And then like a solid chunk that are also local. And I have heard it called the Sundance of performing arts festivals. But I am also in the marketing committee slash like not committee, full time job. But sorry, I'm so used to being in a co-op that everything is a committee. Yeah. So there's like weird dance and weird music and weird, I don't know, like kind of cabaret style and just like animation and like live. Just everything is kind of strange and interesting. And so I really recommend checking it out, especially if you're under 25. We have like $5 rush tickets, which is insane because these things normally cost like 40, 50, 60 bucks. So yeah, push is cool. At two or 10? Yeah. And uh, when's the festival on? January. All right. A big so lead time. Just just missed that one? Yeah. Well, it comes around again next uh, year. 15th anniversary. will be great. So you work for the Japan Times as well? Yeah. Did you live in Tokyo while you were there? I or sure was that did. A- I lived in Japan for four years. I left right after graduating university um, with the plan of only staying a year. And then um, I sort of kicked and screamed. I had a long distance relationship that was like, so I was emotionally like not really present for the majority of the time that I was there. And then recontracting time came around and I was like, nah, I'm leaving. I want to go back and whatever. And then me and my long distance partner, or yeah, I mean, we weren't even real. I mean, were we girlfriends? I don't know. Anyway, this th- there was heartbreak. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to stay. So I started learning Japanese a, a lot more, started paying more attention to my classes making Japanese friends and so I stayed two years in this cool town that I was it's technically a city but it felt more like a town to me called Onomichi in Hiroshima prefecture and then I spent uh, then I was also thinking of leaving then I fell in love with someone and then we moved to Tokyo and then I got a job at an English language daily newspaper there called the Japan Times um, and I stayed there for two years then we moved to London and then back to here. And then back to Vancouver. Then did we you, broke up and then we moved back and then I moved back to Vancouver. Did you pursue comedy at all while you were there? Or is that, that all only, recent years? No, not really, because I was like, um honestly, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, the past uh I guess twelve years of my life is like a really long case study in like refusing to decide what to do when I grow up. And so I it just had my degree and all this debt and I was like, Well, in Japan, they'll give you a fucking job right away. So I'll just go and do it. And it seems like it'll be cool or whatever. I wasn't particularly like a Japanophile, like, or whatever. Like I, th- I think weirbo is the current term. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, it was, I had to make up a story when I lived in Japan and people asked me, why did you come to Japan? I was like, well, my, this is partially true. My grade seven teacher had also done the same program. And so when I was a kid, I had this notion that you could go and teach in japan um and that it was a really interesting place but anyhow there i was and um and i found it really challenging like i'm not the first person to i don't know i think if anyone says like oh my god it's the best place on earth and it's so rad and amazing and wonderful and the coolest like they've been on a holiday in japan which is true um but if you live there especially as a um non-japanese person um and even as a japanese person it's it's a difficult place to live but there's lots of like amazing, cool, beautiful, wonderful things also about Japan. There's just both. Yeah, I started like I was always kind of writerly. And so 
Um, I started writing a little bit um, for some of the like publications that were going around for, uh, I mean, this is like pre-Facebook, uh, at the time, like newsletters that people would make. And then I started contributing to like, um, like I kind of met people who did uh, Lonely Planet writing and I would like write the like gay column for a certain city at some point in Tokyo. and Or I guess by the time I got to Tokyo, I got the job at the newspaper, which was pretty fortuitous. Like I didn't even really know what copy editing was until I already was like in line to work there. And then I took out a book and I was like, oh yeah, this is what I'm like anyway. And so I did that for two years. And then I just kind of got more interested in the the weeklies and the magazine components and the longer form stuff. And I wasn't so interested in like becoming the editor in chief and like being the biggest, like, I don't know. I mean, a newsroom, it's another like swinging dick fest. So I went into the weeklies and then I was like, I want to do magazines. And then we moved to London and I tried to get an internship at Wired. And then all I was unemployed for a million years and all I could get was a copy editing job editing recipe cards for a supermarket <laughs> and um, that was a white rose yeah that was a white rose and so then which from the outside was kind of like the best version of that type of job to get i mean it's a cooperative company and like whatever but it was also just a giant company and i'm not really well suited to giant companies um and so that that i did that for a while and then i was kind of like i had this suspicion that some sort of writing some sort of editing job was not the thing for me. Like it just didn't seem like it was gonna gonna excite me and I wanted my work to excite me. And so I started attending like film school sort of orientation evenings like here and there all over London in my free time or like one of those sort of take a class where you spend a weekend with like three strangers and like make a movie or something, uh, things just to sort of see whether or not that was something I was interested in. And then I moved back to Vancouver and did the film arts program at Langara, which is an eight months intensive, which I strongly recommend to anybody who's ever considered going to Vancouver Film School. Never go to Vancouver Film School. Really? It's just a ripoff factory. They're just making money off of your dreams. You don't get actually a lot of control over what you end up doing when you're there. Whereas at Langara, you spend eight months learning production and everybody in the director's dream directs two films. So... You, you you could spend 10, 20, 30 times as much money at VFS and end up being the sound mixer yeah. in someone else's film. Like, And I did that and I was like, oh my God, film is amazing. I love film. Film is my life. And yeah, I mean, I made a documentary, whatever. I got it in the Queer Film Fest, kind of ticked that box and then um, started working on sets. And in Vancouver, there's lots of work like that, but absolutely zero of it is creative or it takes you five to 10 years to figure that out. And I couldn't quite pick a department. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I'm not costumes. I'm not props. And (laughs) otherwise, like unless you're super computery, there's also lots of work in assisting in visual effects. And so I ended up kind of being in the visual effects department, but as like a, it's very specific actually, but basically I worked in motion capture, putting like dots on actors (laughs) and uh, just sort of like a combo of costumes and nerdy, visual effects stuff but um, basically again it was another bro fest and also very intense and you had to like leave your whole life and I don't know it just didn't suit me anymore I was like this isn't really the path that I want to be on and so then I yeah pivoted to film fest work which I was like this is cool I like this it's intense and you can have a bunch of time off to do your creative projects in between um, which is true but it's also like really difficult to have a bunch of debt and eat so 
I was looking for full-time work and this came along and then I was like, okay, communications, let's put it all together. And in the meantime, underneath all of that comedy had sort of come in. And so for me, comedy ended up being the creative outlet that I was looking for in film, but it's like the exact opposite of film. So film is extensive planning and extreme collaboration. And, and while there's certainly planning involved with comedy, a lot of the beauty of it is paying attention to something unique or strange that happens in a certain moment. And then trying to harvest that (laughs) again and again as you hone and develop your material and but you're forgiven every night because every night is uh is action it's cameras it's cut and it's edit and it's distribute all in the same five minutes it's very forgiving that way whereas film is definitely interesting hearing a stand-up cut down into uh, film terms yeah well yeah i mean it's as a art project it's the opposite in that it's also not really collaborative at all or the only collaboration you need is to like get along well enough with uh to get on shows so it's in terms of like uh low impact creative outlets i would say it's challenging in the sense that it's like embarrassing and difficult and you feel stupid all the time and you think you have nothing to say but sometimes when it works it's like holy shit that was the coolest thing ever like making people laugh is really um special i think but also just being able to also do i don't know just kind of like bear witness to your experiences or whatever kind of thing you want to do or talk about it's basic in the sense of not like basic like basic but basic like fundamental and so i think um it suits me more than film did you have fewer excuses for not doing it. For anyone on CITR, thanks so much for tuning in. That's the end of our time slot, but you can hear the full episode along with other podcasts on cavegoblins.com. For anyone else, stick around. We've still got lots more to talk about with Jackie. Now I just want to do a little plug for everything economics on the Cave Goblin Network. Talia Murdoch hosts this informative and engaging podcast on, you guessed it, everything economics in a relatable and easy-to-digest way. That's everything economics on cavegoblins.com. But back to the show. So I asked Jackie before the show who she'd like to talk about on today's episode, and uh, she picked Chelsea Peretti. So uh, Chelsea Peretti, probably most famous for her role as Gina Linetti on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm. Uh, can you tell me why you picked Chelsea to talk about today? Yeah. Um, First name basis, obviously. Yeah, the chelsea Um, I think no one says that. Um, oh, man. You do. Time that question for another nib moment. Hmm. Maybe the nibs are a poor choice. No, it's okay. I mean, they're not crunchy. Um, mm, that, that was part of the thinking. Yeah. It's really just because I love them. Oh, no. <laughs> terrible. The Oreos is a massive mistake. No, no, no. Yeah. Nuts are also bad. Yeah. I feel like ice cream with wooden spoons, maybe. <laughs> have, have you listened to uh, A Very Fatal Murder? Mm-mm. It's a, the Onions version of a true crime podcast. Oh, nice. It's really good, and they, they have, like, ads for fake other podcasts, and one of them is, like, two white guys eating bagels really close to a microphone. <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, but, yeah, same question. Right. Um, where did I discover my love for Chelsea Pretty? I can't even remember anymore, to be honest, because I think it was before her special came out. Um, but after... Or maybe it was Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I don't know. Anyway, she just sort of occurred to me, um, as comedy comedians do. I just felt like she was the funniest part of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I was sort of like, 
oh, and then I think my friend who was a comic was like, oh, yeah, she's a comic. So I looked her up and then I did the like deep dive on YouTube where I watched like all of her old web series of walking around Brooklyn, like weirdly interviewing people about like kind of non sequitur stuff or whatever. I, so I strongly like encourage it. Sort of. Yeah, but less weird. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I just I mean, I've. I feel like I'm more familiar with Billy on the Street from people talking about it than from actually seeing it. I'd um, recommend it. Uh, okay. Oh. I feel like I have too many like real true crime prod- podcasts in the queue before that, but um, then fake. Oh, before crime the very podcast. fatal murder, and then if I later still have time, I will <laughs> watch Billy on the Street. Anyway. Um, yeah, uh, and so then her special came out, and honestly, I think it's perfect. Like, I think, I mean, she, you know, came out of the gates swinging by calling her, herself one of the greats, but her yeah. special is truly, to me, I mean, I do, I'm one of the people who thinks that comedy is different things to different people, and that there isn't, like, one comedy. <laughs> if there were Venn diagrams of what my tastes are, Chelsea Purdy would be like almost entirely over top of what interests me in, in comedy, which is like a self-awareness about comedy, like a sending up of the form, like keen, uh, you know, gender politics analysis. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just think she's fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. I, yeah. In the first, uh, my first impression of her was hearing her on uh, Comedy Bang Bang mm. and um, as a character in Crawl Show. Have you ever watched that? It, the Crawl Show is not, like, exactly my thing. Uh, <laughs> although there's lots of people who I think are really funny who are on it. Uh, including Such as Chelsea Je- Pretty, yeah. Yeah, and Jenny Slate. And, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've never really been one for that kind of i feel like it's like more of a british style like <laughs> of, um i've never thought like about really that wacky way. people i don't know uh maybe that's because when i was living in london there was it's the guy who's on the new great british bake-off what's his name it's like a horse face um anyway. oh, no, i don't watch that one anyway we'll find out we'll find out anyway uh, it doesn't matter and then i also started listening to her like very bizarre podcast which is kind of like a call-in show where she's just her on the booth and people call in kind of live during the show and she she'll just bounce them out or she just sometimes she'll just play weird sound effects at them it's like a send-up of like gorgeous george or um those kind of like morning zoo radio shows most likely yeah except that it's uh you know, sometimes she'll just really get into it. I, I don't really know. I mean, I can only imagine she does it as like some kind of exercise to write or something, but they're really strange and I really liked it. So, but she's stopped doing them since uh, it's been a few years, I think. What's that one called? <sighs> what is it called? Noel Fielding, the. Yeah. Oh, the guy from Mighty Bush. Yeah, that's that's what, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, I was like, that doesn't really. I have been called Chelsea Peretti by <laughs> Chelsea Peretti. <laughs> exactly, it's. I, we should have guessed. Yeah, exactly. I was like, it's very straightforward. The title, it's not. It doesn't have like some sort of clever name. Um, she's got a lot of like uh, anti-comedy sensibilities as well. I think. I guess so. I don't know. Not necessarily in like the Gina character, but right. Uh, from her appearances on Comedy Bang Bang, like she's pretty good at sort of following the narrative. Mm. I'm going to talk about Comedy Bang Bang and Scott Ackerman again. 
It just devolved into that last week. Oh, okay. Fa- failing the Bechdel test. Uh, <laughs> speaking of, I found out uh, in my research of her that her brother co-founded BuzzFeed and HuffPo. Yeah. Pretty crazy. She's like one of the greats and attached to the greats as well. Like She's married to Jordan Peele, just an Academy Award winner. Exactly. Recently. Yeah. Real power I remember couple. her having to um, defend the once people started seeing it they were like is this about your family <laughs> she was just like yeah it's a documentary Fuck. oh one of the greats no get out oh that, right that get out was like you know yeah was yeah. it like his experience and she was like yeah grow up kids like i don't know she was just sort of like was she in- involved with the uh production of it i mean our wives involved with husbands films i don't think so i don't think she has a credit on it right I think she was filming. I mean, she was mm, timing wise. She probably wouldn't have been pregnant while they were filming it. But anyway, could have been doing Brooklyn Nine Nine. She's yeah. been picked up again after being canceled. Exactly. That's maybe Power one of the, the quickest queers. turnarounds in history, right? I know. As I, I think it had already been picked up by the time I heard the news that it had been canceled. If only we could. I I was alerted immediately by the queer Illuminati, and who also is I that think, Google alerts? <laughs> basically. <laughs> Except it comes through your Instagram stories. So I was like emotionally invested in that journey for three days or however long it was. But yeah, we're big watchers. She's Love a good B99. She's got uh, some pretty robust writing credits as well. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote some, some really good episodes of Parks and Rec. Yeah. Or things in here. Bobby Bottle Service. Yeah. Unfortunately, Louis. Uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Yeah. Comedy Central Presents. We are... I think I'd be surprised to hear that kind of thing about Mark Maron. I don't know. No, I said R.I.P. Louis oh. C.K. I oh, feel like yeah. we all know Mark I'd... too well at this point. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he just wears his heart on his sleeve anyway. Yeah, I mean. Did you read that stuff about Chris Hardwick today? No. Yeah, it's it's a pretty. Uh... You couldn't hear my eyes rolling just there, but. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I'm not surprised by by uh, an accusation towards him, but. The actual nature of it, it's a, by his uh, ex-girlfriend, is a medium article. Mm. Uh, I would recommend reading. It's called Rose Colored, Colored Glasses. Oh, it, I've definitely seen that sort of mm. around the internet today. So I'll take a look at it. Uh, yeah, but um, to kind of tack away from that, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- done a lot of voicing as well. Voices Monica and Big Mouth. Mm-hmm. You watched that one. Uh, I've written here, hilarious stand-up special on Netflix. One of the greats. But it's the best. Obviously he- uh, heavily covered. Have you ever heard a beautiful singing voice? <laughs> Only on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think, and on her show. Yeah, or her podcast, she'll sometimes just, like, break into song. I've been being really surprised by it, like, on uh, CBB, when she just break into it, like, improv songs, but she sounds like a lounge singer from the 30s or something. Yeah, I think she's maybe got a background in dancing, too. Like, I think she's some kind of, you know, she's like a... Triple threat. Yeah, well... Like a lot of creative people have a lot of different sort of outlets. So I think I think you see that, though, sometimes when it, after a couple seasons, writers will work in the actual talents of the human being, that like the actor that plays a character. And so Gina was more and more interested in like dance based things because they knew that they'd be able to get a lot of comedy out of Chelsea in that in that mode. So yeah. I'm still to watch that show sequentially, but I feel like I got to get into it now. Yeah, I mean... You know, it's like, it's a very, it's high quality fluff, hmm. which is an important part of a yeah, modern a, modern media diet. 
Yeah, having a good background show, you've always got to have one going. Yeah, uh, we we straight up pay attention to it, but oh, yeah. it's a foreground show. <laughs> it's a foreground show. Yeah. Is there anything you're working on right now that that you want to plug? Hmm. I mean, honestly, um, I, because Foxhole is a weekly show, it's it's kind of a never ending project. Um, in the sense that you know I'm booking always three to six weeks in advance um and by that i mean you know i don't just sort of sequentially chuck people onto a show necessarily i'll make sure that the mix of people seems like it'll be a fun night to the extent that i have that kind of control and of course i'm always sort of keeping an eye out for the balance of of voices on the show and um and that keeps me pretty busy and then on top of that yeah, I mean, I guess I'm performing. I'm on a show a July 14th. Uh, it's called Angry and Afraid. Um, that's just a stand-up set, though. I feel like at this point, people just... Like, when you have a show, you also have, like, a little teeny tiny bit of power. to, Or, like, you have something to trade. So people people who also run shows, but who I book on my show, I'll, they're, like, more amenable to booking me, <laughs> I think. I don't want mean to be self-deprecating, but... I think um, I don't hustle as I don't have to hustle as hard as I used to to get on shows because I have a show and so people know me now a little bit better. So yeah, so I'm on Full Pint. I think it's coming up sometime in the next couple of weeks. That's the one on Granville Island. But like, if you're interested in stand-up comedy, and I'm so sorry um, <laughs> if you are, but also uh, if you're interested in improv comedy, you know that's like really truly a whole different world. And there are a handful of shows where they sort of blend together, like Blood Feud. You're gonna have those guys on next but like also the list there's a few shows around town where we had randy on a couple of weeks ago right on perfect yeah. so there's a few shows that mix those things up but essentially improv and stand-up are two sides of the same coin who yeah and, and they're the twain shall meet except for a few weirdo so uh where, where can people follow uh foxhole or, or you if they want to yeah, um, Foxhole is um, the best place to 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 get at us is on Facebook, just Foxhole Comedy, three words, and Instagram. I haven't really felt like it was necessary to make a whole Twitter persona for the show. It's so much work. It's so much work. Yeah. Instagram just makes sense. I feel like we have pictures of the lineup and stuff. Uh, tell weird stories, whatever. We will sometimes put stories on from the like on the night of. Um, but uh, yeah, honestly, like for folks who are interested in trying comedy for the very first time, like my show is open to them, especially like queer and gender non-binary, like women of color or folks of color. Um, like especially those people, but also kind of anyone except for honestly, if you're like a white guy you should feel fine going to all the rest of the spaces. Like you probably, you might be upset by it, but like you can do it. But everyone else <laughs> come to our show. First of all, come check it out. I mean, it's only five bucks uh, for now. I think we may raise the price at once we hit a year uh, just cause. Inflation. Baby wants to make some money. Well, we're breaking even so far where we don't, and we only pay the headliner. Everybody else just gets a free drink and it'd be nice to give everybody just a little bit more money, even if it's just like a little bit more. Yeah. Um, it just makes such a difference when you do this because most of the time you end up paying to perform, getting yourself a beer, like driving yourself there or taking yeah. a cab or whatever. So, well, if anyone from. Uh, yeah, just reach out to us. There's an email address too. It's foxholecomedy at gmail.com. 
Cool. Yeah. And probably what I'll suggest, and just to cut a step out of this process, is that you come to the show and introduce yourself once. If I've never met you or never heard of you, then I'll book you in person. So just email me or reach out. It's myself and Robin, my wife, who run the show. Robin helps a lot behind the scenes with the money and the playlists and just keeping us organized on the day and that kind of stuff. Some Insta help. And um, so one of the two of us will get back to you. And like, I... I'm one of those people who can't, you know, when people screen grab their phone and like circle something to show whatever the funny thing is, but then you can see that they had like 30 messages and like four notifications. It always makes me really nervous. I'm like, ah, like answer your messages. So I answer messages. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for having me. Sorry. Welcome back anytime. And uh, anyone that would uh, form in your, in your shows is also welcome here as well. No, pass along some word. Let them know. That was Jackie Hoffert talking about Chelsea Peretti. Join me next week when I talk to Matty Vu and Malcolm McLeod of Blood Feud Comedy about Pete Holmes. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to follow us on all social media at Cave Goblins and check out what we're doing over on cavegoblins.com. We've got a Reddit community and a Discord server that you can find through our website, so hop on over there. You can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere you listen. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Comedy Zeitgeist. See you next time.